0: They are the hunters and trackers of thousands of potentially hazardous space rocks, and you'll meet them this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. There's something about the University of Arizona and asteroids. I suppose it's no accident. The great institution in Tucson is headquarters for several of our planet's most productive or promising projects designed to meet the challenge presented by Near Earth Objects. I met the leaders of Spacewatch and the Catalina Sky Survey when I visited the campus in September. You'll hear my conversations with these defenders of Earth in minutes. Then we'll head out across the solar system with Bruce Betts and What's Up? giving you another chance to win the coveted rubber asteroid. That's no comet, or if it is, it was created by us when the double asteroid redirection test spacecraft slammed into asteroid and moonlit dimorphos. You should see the striking image captured by the Hubble Space Telescope. You'll find it at the top of the October 14 edition of The Downlink, the Planetary Society's free weekly newsletter, Okay, that long trail of debris does not mean we've made a comet, but it does tell us that we little humans now have the power to avoid the fate of the dinosaurs, which is a pretty good reason to light up the sky. Another great image of a subject much, much further away has been snapped by the JWST, it's a young star surrounded by a dense disk of gas and dust, a disk that is very likely to have baby worlds forming within it, much as scientists believe our own solar system was formed four and a half billion years ago. It's like looking at our own genesis. There's so much more waiting for you at planetary.org slash downlink. Here's a fun opportunity you might want to look into if you're hearing me in time. The Planetary Science Institute's CosmoQuest team, led by my friend Pamela Gay, is back with CosmoQuest a con. The theme for this year's online gathering is Rockin' with Robots and Rockets. It runs Friday through Sunday, October 21 to 23. I'll be on a great science journalism panel Saturday at 2 p.m. 1800 UTC. You can learn more and get tickets at CosmoQuest.org. Melissa Brucker is the University of Arizona research scientist who heads SpaceWatch, the first of the two survey projects we'll learn about today. I was already in Tucson to host the NIAC Symposium webcast that you may have heard excerpts of in last week's show. It was a warm walk across the campus to the headquarters of the Lunar and Planetary Lab, where I met Melissa in the SpaceWatch offices. Melissa, welcome to Planetary Radio. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for coming to visit.
0: You know, my plan was to get you and Eric Christensen together because I thought that'd be so cool to have the two leaders of two of the world's most successful, most prominent uh, sky searches together in the same room. We couldn't quite make the schedules work, so I'm happy to talk to the two of you separately, but it would have been fun. I don't know, you wanna say hi to Eric?
1: <laughs> hi, Eric. <laughs> we actually don't see each other in person very often.
0: <laughs> Even though his office is right just upstairs, yes, right? Yes,
1: yes. Well, we both do observing as well as managing the groups.
0: Figures. So we are, of course, at the University of Arizona, which is not where either of you do your observing, You use those telescopes on that famous site known as Kitt Peak, which is still recovering from what was very close to a real observation-ending disaster. How are you recovering from that fire?
1: We were allowed to return to the summit in August and start cleaning up all of the dust and ash that had blown into all of the observatories. And then we tested our equipment so we were able to start observing with our two main telescopes. Uh, we have a 1.8-meter or 72-inch, um, that is the Lunar and Planetary Lab Telescope built by Spacewatch, And we also use um, Stewart Observatory's 0.9-meter or 36-inch telescope We tested all of our equipment there and made sure that we could open and close the domes and move the telescopes around and and check that our instruments were still working. Uh, So we began observations again on September 11th.
0: Congratulations. But you still don't have power or internet?
1: (laughs) Sort of. (laughs) Uh, There are two or three generators that are providing energy for the power, and Kitt Peak National Observatory has a Starlink dish that all of us together get a little bit of the data that that goes through the Starlink dish.
0: So thank you, Elon Musk. I suppose. I suppose. <laughs> um, let's back up. Tell us about Spacewatch. I know it's been around for over four decades yes. now.
1: Yes. Uh, Spacewatch started in 1980 to find funds to build a telescope to do asteroid survey, sky surveys, we began taking images with a CCD in 1983. We were the first asteroid survey to use CCDs. Um, Before that, there was photographic plates and um, other media. (laughs) But this was the first survey using CCDs.
0: For people who are too young to remember, and that may include you, what a change in capability CCDs brought about right rather than I mean also a lot more convenient than dealing with big old glass plates. Yes.
1: It was revolutionary yeah, yeah. <laughs> Really, so we began as a survey. We are not currently acting as a discovery survey right now We do astrometric follow-up So we look at objects that have just been discovered to get more measures measurements of them So that once we found them they don't get lost.
0: And I'm going to follow up on your follow-up work in a moment, but you're still making some discoveries, right? I saw a graph that showed a steadily rising line of newly discovered objects.
1: Definitely, yes.
0: How do you quantify? How do you talk about the amount of work that's done overall? Because there are some specific types of follow-ups, which I also want to get into because they're pretty exciting.
1: Um, So we uh, have software that presents us with lots of near-Earth asteroid choices to look at, and we tag them based on what list they came from. Hmm. So we focus primarily on virtual impactors, which are asteroids whose orbits, our knowledge of their orbits is uncertain enough that there is a possibility that it might hit the Earth within the next 100 years. So we focus on those. We focus on potentially hazardous asteroids, which are asteroids that are 140 meters in size or larger, and also whose orbit gets within 0.05 AU of Earth's orbit. So we try to look at PHAs that get really close to Earth within the next 40 years, and also we try and look at them when they're fainter than most other follow-up telescopes can look at them.
0: Who's making the, the bulk of the discoveries now, if you guys are doing mostly follow-up?
1: Catalina Sky Survey here at University of Arizona. Uh, we're actually in the same department, the Lunar and Planetary Lab, and PANSTARS at the University of Hawaii. Between them, they discover most of the new near-Earth asteroids. There are several other discovery surveys as well that contribute to that. And,
0: of course, we'll be talking, as we said, Derek Christensen and... Well, just a few moments as people listen to this uh, this program, but PanStars, we've also talked about a little bit on the, uh, on the show. There was another class of follow-up that you do that I was fascinated to see, and it involves yet another effort that emanates now largely from the University of Arizona, and that's Neowise under your, your colleague, Amy Minzer, who's an old friend of our show.
1: Yes. In 2010, during the Wise, original WISE mission, Spacewatch was the prominent follow-up observatory of asteroids that WISE looked at and discovered. Bob McMillan, who was leading Spacewatch at the time, um, was part of the science team for the WISE mission.
0: You told me you don't run into Amy that often, but clearly this is an important part of this whole structure that now exists for finding characterizing, tracking these objects which are so important.
1: Um, Professor Vishnu Reddy does a lot Mm. of near-Earth asteroid characterization. He is also in our department.
0: It really seems to be a center for this kind of work, the University of Arizona.
1: Yes, the department has built up a reputation for asteroid work. Um, In fact, the OSIRIS-REx mission was directed out of here. It actually still is based in our department
0: a lot going on, obviously. There is one more major thing that as we speak is only about a week away. It will already have happened by the time people hear this program. You know what I'm leading up to. And again, Space Watch got everything started.
1: Yes. Um, in April of 1996, one of our observers discovered the asteroid Didymos, and Didymos's moon will be the target of NASA's first planetary defense mission.
0: You were telling me before we started recording that you folks are still very involved with the DART team at the Applied Physics Lab. What, what's the current status and what is your involvement at this point?
1: Spacewatch's involvement is that we plan on taking light curve data of the Didymos system after the impact. So it will be visible from this latitude beginning in mid-October and will probably start in November once its rate across the sky slows down a bit. Ah. Um, And we could observe it from November until March um, when it will be too faint to get extremely accurate data from it.
0: What will be the goal of those observations? Will it be primarily to see if dark manage to nudge it a little bit?
1: Yes, so the goal is to see if the orbit of the moon has changed after being impacted by the spacecraft. And how it changes depends also on what is the strength of the moon. When the spacecraft hits it, it will deform the moon, but also it will change the orbit. So it depends on the angle of impact and the strength of the object. Um, But over time, the orbit of the moon should change And that will change the pattern that we'll see of the change in brightness and darkness of the moon and the asteroid together as they individually rotate and as the moon orbits around the larger asteroid.
0: What do we know about the nature of Dimorphos right now? I mean, I've heard people, I think, jokingly say, what if it's just a big rubble pile and dark will just zoom right through it? It's a little more massive probably than that, right?
1: It's about 500 feet across. I think that people think that it is a rubble pile. Um, yeah. I haven't done any studies of that, but we'll, we'll see.
0: <laughs> I imagine there must really be quite a bit of excitement around here, knowing that this object that, <laughs> that you folks discovered, that Spacewatch discovered, is now the subject of this very important test.
1: Definitely. Uh, we're very excited to be able to look at Didymos and Dimorphos. It's really exciting. We can't wait. Yeah. Um, you know, we've been working in planetary defense uh, for the Planetary Defense Coordination Office from before it was named that. And so to be part of the very first planetary defense physical physical test of hitting an asteroid is is really exciting.
0: I'll say. As is Neo Surveyor. You know, what, yes. what Amy is yes. doing uh, up the hall here, I guess. I want to talk about something that the Planetary Society, it's been a major priority of ours to see the study of near-Earth objects elevated uh, by NASA and by other agencies around the world. And, you know, we, we think that we've helped to contribute to that. And now, of course, it is centered in this group, the PDCO, Planetary Defense Coordination Office, headed by Lindley Johnson, who's been our guest many times. I must assume that you think this is a really smart thing for... NASA and other agencies to be doing.
1: Definitely. Um, You know, the probability of any asteroids striking the Earth is extremely, extremely low. But it's not zero. So while we have not discovered a near-Earth asteroid that would be extremely dangerous to life on Earth, we want to be able to deal with that possibility even though it's a very low probability.
0: Exactly how we put it as well. NASA, of course, provides a good part of your funding, right? The Space Watch? Yes. Does that come through the PDCO?
1: The grants are through the Near Earth Object Observations Program. Hmm. Um, So it is part of the general Roses call for funding that NASA puts out every year. The PDCO oversees that budget line, the NEOO budget line.
0: And there's a family foundation also that contributes? Um,
1: yes, we have a program to observe near-Earth asteroids to collect light curves of them and determine their rotational the rotational periods of the asteroids. And that is funded by the Brinson Foundation of Chicago. In fact, that was the meeting that I was in just before this. Oh, okay. And it will be funding part of the light curve work that we, we will be doing with Didymos.
0: If people go to the Space Watch website, There's a lot of great descriptive material there, but there is also this long list of firsts. I won't go through all of them, but a couple here. First Astronomical Group to Develop Automated Real-Time Software for Moving Object Detection. We talked to a lot of amateur astronomers, and they use, I'm sure they're descendants of the software that was developed by SpaceWatch. That seems like it was a pretty big advance.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that was in 1990.
0: Wow, 32 (laughs) years ago. That's amazing. And then another one, which I assume is similar, except it was an actual discovery. First, automatic discovery of a comet. How do you discover a comet automatically?
1: The same way you discover an asteroid, but once you look at the images, you see it's fuzzy.
0: I see. Okay, so it is, I mean, it's doing that old, what used to be called, I think, the blink
1: test. Yes.
0: Could you describe that?
1: (laughs) Well, we actually still use blinking. (laughs) 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 You take a series of images of one region of the sky, and you blink the images back and forth when doing it by eye and see if anything is moving where it's not in the same place in the first image as compared to the second image. And then if it looks like in three images it's moving in a straight line, Uh then you can assume it's probably the same object and you measure the positions in each of the three images and the specific times at which the image was taken. And that will give you not only three coordinates of where it was, but also two velocities.
0: It worked for Clyde Tombaugh. It
1: did. <laughs> <laughs> you can actually see uh, copies of the Pluto discovery images at Lowell Observatory.
0: Wow, that's great. Yeah, which of course is where he did that work. That yeah. Amazing discovery of Pluto. It's one of the thing. It said, identify two new asteroid populations, small NEAs or near-Earth asteroids, and distant centaurs, which have been mentioned now and then on the show, but not often. Could you yes. talk about both of those?
1: When you get better technology, you can see things that are fainter. So discovering small near near-earth, near-Earth objects required large enough telescopes, which at this time was the 36-inch telescope on Kitt Peak, we usually refer to as a 0.9 meter now, and this dedicated survey. When you're doing an asteroid survey as opposed to an astrophysical survey, you're looking mainly in the ecliptic, so in, in the disk of the solar system, because most small bodies in the solar system will be in that disk. They'll flatten yes, out into that disk that. just like or the planets. Or if, yeah. if their orbits are inclined, they still have to pass through the disk twice.
0: Sure, yeah.
1: The centaur population being further out, centaurs are usually considered to be icy objects. They're in unstable orbits between the giant planets. They have come inward from the Kuiper Belt, and are now orbiting around, and they may end up coming in closer and becoming Jupiter family comets.
0: Therefore, would be pretty interesting objects to get up close to and study, right? Because yes. if they came from the Kuiper Belt, we've still only looked at a couple of things up close in the Kuiper Belt, yes. if you count Pluto.
1: <laughs> Pluto, Charon, and Erokoth.
0: yeah, <laughs> right. We've made a lot of progress, but we obviously still have a long ways to go. I mean, we, we found the really big dudes hopefully, do you think we're on track for reaching the point where we really will know what rocks pose a major threat to Earth, giving us the chance to do something about it?
1: I think we are. In 2005, there was a congressional mandate to discover, track, and characterize um, 90% of the near-Earth asteroids that are 140 meters in size and larger. Unfortunately, was unfunded mandate uh, mm. that was supposed to be completed by uh, 2020. Right now, it is about 59% complete. No, it's 59% incomplete. So it is 41%, 41% complete yeah. um, as of last January. The Neo Surveyor mission, which uh, you had mentioned, is directed out of this department, will be able to make huge strides in accomplishing that goal, as will the LSST, once that comes online in October of 2024. Studies from a year or two ago have predicted that once both surveys are running, the mandate will be met within 10 years.
0: Wow. that That's a pretty good target that we're shooting for, and it sounds like we're on track. Uh, You mentioned the LSST, which is that big, new Southern Hemisphere telescope?
1: so the telescope is the Vera C. Rubin Observatory, and it will be revolutionary in all aspects of astronomy, astrophysics, and planetary science.
0: I mean, in addition to maybe saving the planet someday, these are just interesting objects to learn about, right?
1: Yes. Every near-Earth asteroid that we've had up-close images of has been different.
0: One of my favorite things about talking to people like you across the 20 years of this show has been the surprises and the degree of diversity that we keep finding out there in our own backyard, our own solar system.
1: Definitely. With the OSIRIS-REx tag sampling of Bennu, Mm. they said that when the probe went in to collect the sample, the surface of Bennu did not slow the spacecraft down at all. (laughs) What slowed it down was the thrusters, the engine thrusters? Uh-huh. So it just went right in. Uh, I heard someone say they described it as a ball pit, like a wow, like a children's uh-huh. ball pit, <laughs> the kind
0: my, my six year old grandson would have a great time in. Yes. Wow. Uh, so there's your, there's your rubble pile again. Mm-hmm. Uh, just one more for you. I saw that before you came here, you were at Adler Planetarium, that, that famous facility, next to the lake in Chicago actually on the lake, kind of, Yes. Um, what were you doing there as a postgrad?
1: So I had a postdoc fellowship there working with Mark Hammergren to do near-Earth asteroid tracking. Um, We had um, a share of the Apache Point three and a half meter telescope in New Mexico. And so we would observe near-Earth asteroids for about two hours every, every other night hmm. uh, at the mid- in the middle of their night to follow up and track some of those fainter objects, fainter near-Earth asteroids. And we also had time to use their spectrographs, so we would take oh. spectra of some of the asteroids as well.
0: Did you ever, I mean, were you actually based at the planetarium?
1: Yes, we had offices in the planetarium. <laughs> there actually is a full-time research staff there. And so I was part of that research staff. I've
0: talked to some of those folks in the past. Did you have any interaction with the public as they... Hundreds of thousands of people who come through there?
1: Oh, yes. All of the astronomers there spend time um, on the floor of the the, uh, planetarium speaking with visitors. And they have a special visualization room that we can talk with people in and also just on the floor talking with people. After the New Horizons flyby of Pluto, I actually spent... Two or three full days up there talking with the public, since my dissertation was on Kuiper ball objects. Oh,
0: okay. I didn't know that. It sounds like you enjoy that interaction. It wasn't just a distraction from uh, your observations.
1: No, it was. It's always great interacting with the public and sharing the things that we're excited about.
0: I will note that the building we're in right now, the Kuiper Space Sciences Building, the headquarters for Lunar and Planetary Lab. Is right next to a planetarium here in Tucson. Kind of fun that you are still working, if not at, and right next to another planetarium. Yes. yes. Melissa, thank you very much. Um, what's ahead for Spacewatch, other than getting <laughs> power back on from the grid and uh, getting off of <laughs> your your uh, must-provided satellite? Yes,
1: dish? we're eagerly awaiting um, full internet so that we can actually transmit image image data. <laughs> I bet. So uh, we are working on coming up with a plan to uh, interact with the LSST data because it will be orders of magnitude more discoveries of asteroids. The community will will still need asteroid follow-up like what we are doing now, but Mm -hmm. it will have a different face in the future.
0: A flood of data just ahead. Yes. Very exciting stuff. Thank you for welcoming us to your office. We'll, we'll talk with Eric Christensen next about the Catalina Sky Survey, your neighbor here, and I'll, I'll make sure that uh, he knows you said hello.
1: <laughs> that sounds great.
0: University of Arizona astronomer Melissa Brucker is principal investigator for Spacewatch. As promised, we'll meet her colleague Eric Christensen in a minute.
2: Hello, I'm George Takei, and as you know, I'm very proud of my association with Star Trek. Star Trek was a show that looked to the future with optimism, boldly going where no one had gone before. I want you to know about a very special organization called the Planetary Society. They are working to make the future that Star Trek represents a reality. When you become a member of the Planetary Society, you join their mission to increase discoveries in our solar system, to elevate the search for life outside our planet, and decrease the risk of Earth being hit by an asteroid. Co-founded by Carl Sagan and led today by CEO Bill Nye, the Planetary Society exists for those who believe in space exploration to take action together. So join the Planetary Society and boldly go together to build our future.
0: 25 or so comets are likely to forever bear the name of our next guest. In addition to discovering those comets, and working for five years at an observatory in Chile, Eric Christensen now directs the fantastically successful Catalina Sky Survey as principal investigator. I made that walk across the University of Arizona campus once again, on my last day in Tucson so that I could sit down with Eric in his office. Eric, thank you for welcoming me to your office here in the uh, Lunar and Planetary Lab offices uh, at the University of Arizona. Thanks very much. Thank you for joining me. It's my pleasure. As you know, I've already talked to your colleague, uh, Melissa Brucker, who had Spacewatch, and by the way, she says hello. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. As I said to her, that these two extremely well-known. I mean, internationally renowned uh, searches, sky searches, are both based on this campus, actually just a few floors apart in this building. It's, it's an interesting relationship.
3: That's right. We've uh, evolved along similar but but parallel tracks. Uh, we occupy the fifth floor, they occupy the second floor, we occupy Mount Lemon. they occupy Kitt Peak, and uh, we, we've both done uh, a, a number of discovery efforts and, and also follow-up.
0: Very, very successfully. Now, while Space Watch now, I guess, is mostly all about follow-up, you guys are still very, very much in, uh, in the discovery business and very successful at it. We're most of the way through uh, 2022. How many near-Earth objects have you guys come up with this year?
3: I don't have an exact count. The number changes uh, pretty much every day, but if we can produce roughly what we've produced the last few years, uh, we'll find... Maybe 1,500 near-Earth asteroids, new near-Earth asteroids this year.
0: Absolutely amazing.
3: And I
0: read that of the roughly 30,000 or so that have been found so far, CSS, Catalina Sky Survey, is responsible for about uh, almost half of those.
3: Nearly half, yes. Certainly uh, when combined with Spacewatch, the University of Arizona has discovered over half of the near-Earth asteroid population.
0: Really, the only survey that I saw that is kind of neck and neck with you is PanStars in in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. Is there any sense of competition there?
3: Inevitably, there is some. Um, However, we're all on uh, Team NASA, Team Planet Earth, uh, Team Near Earth Asteroid. And so... It's a, also a collaborative relationship. Um, we we root for them. Uh, I, I hope they root for us. Uh, hey Richard. Hey Rob. <laughs> hey. <laughs> I'm sure it's it's a balance of
0: collaboration and and competition. It is. Uh, you mentioned the NASA relationship. Is that now partly at least through the the Planetary Defense Coordination Office?
3: It is. Um, The Planetary Defense Coordination Office runs the Near-Earth Object Observation Program, which we apply to uh, every few years for our funding. But most of the uh, near-Earth asteroids that have been discovered in the last 25 years have been discovered by NASA-funded projects. Currently, uh, Catalina Sky Survey, PANSTARS, the ATLAS Project, uh, are the main ground-based neo-discovery projects. But historically, there have been several that have uh, come and gone, and some of which, like Catalina, are, are still going.
0: Lindley Johnson, the head of the PDCO, Planetary Defense Officer for NASA. He's been on the show many times, mm-hmm. good friend of the show. It's so interesting to see how uh, the United States, and really across the world, in just the last few years, seem to have much greater recognition of how important these searches are. Have you seen that as well, this transition?
3: You know, I, I, I think I have. It's maybe a little difficult because I uh, am deeply embedded in the uh, near-Earth asteroid yeah, observations. You've been doing it for years. Sure. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think there is a greater public consciousness uh, today than there was 10 years ago and, and certainly greater today than 20 or 25 years ago when the, the initial efforts uh, to, to detect near-Earth asteroids at scale began.
0: You know that I walked over here uh, across campus uh, from the mirror lab where I was spending time with the uh, uh, director there, the chair and director, uh, Buell Genuzzi. And that's an interview and tour that we'll be sharing before too long. He mentioned LPL, Lunar and Planetary Lab, as, as a sister department on campus. I mean, there's more evidence of how much effort is underway across uh, everything space at the University of Arizona. I mean, what's your relationship uh, with the, uh, the Steward Observatory?
3: Well, the Catalina Sky Survey operates uh, several telescopes, some of which we operate full-time, some of which we apply for time uh, on and, and use part-time. But all of these telescopes are owned by the Steward Observatory. We, uh, we have partnered with them to uh, put these telescopes to, to use. But uh, we work very closely with their mountain operations team, who, who keeps, keep the telescopes up and running, and, and also with the, the directorship to explore new possible ways forward, possible future directions for, for Catalina Sky Survey.
0: Tell me about the telescopes, the instruments the, that you use to get these great
3: results. Well, I'm I'm glad we're doing a radio show because uh, the telescopes, I have to admit, are not that attractive. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I've never seen a telescope I didn't like. Well, so. I, I love these telescopes. But uh, what, what I mean by that is these are older telescopes. Mm. Um, people might have the impression that uh, automated sky surveys are performed by shiny robots in sleek, uh, futuristic buildings perched on top of mountains. Uh, these telescopes that we use date from the 1960s and 70s. That's when they were originally constructed and put to use. And Catalina Sky Survey has been using them for uh, over 20 years now, um, about 20 years for, for some of them. So they're older telescopes. We've uh, done our best to keep them modified and uh, you know m- modernized, um, again, in collaboration with, with Stewart Observatory and through funding from NASA. These telescopes are, are available to us in part because they were underutilized at the time. Mm. So there was an opportunity, telescopes that were available, a newly formed near-object earth observations program that was supplying funding. And so this, this dates back to the late 90s, but uh, that was sort of the the opportunity, the, the seed from which Catalina Sky Survey grew. And of course, even if
0: you're depending on the same lenses or mirrors, there's a lot you can do, uh, particularly with cameras, right? I mean, the advances have been amazing.
3: That's right. There have been a, a series of cameras on, on a few of the Catalina Sky Survey telescopes and a series of telescope control systems as well. So mm-hmm. the, the TCS is, uh, you know, what drives the telescope and, and how we can interact with that. TCS? Uh, yeah. Telescope control system, sort of right. a generic term for a system of electronics and software that will control a telescope. But yes, we've we've been able to upgrade the the sensors for the survey telescopes uh, a few years ago, and with that, we've uh, widened our, our field of view on each of the survey telescopes. So that allows us to cover more sky. More sky coverage equals more neo discoveries.
0: I got to note that at that one of your telescopes, a so one and a half meter. Actually built in 1967 under the direction of someone whose name will be familiar to pretty much everybody who listens to this show, Gerard Kuiper, uh, of the famous Kuiper Belt. I mean, that's that's quite a legacy.
3: It is, yes, and and you can uh, draw a fairly straight line between uh, the founding of the Lunar and Planetary Lab under Kuiper's direction. Kuiper was a, a mentor of of the founder of Catalina Sky Survey, Steve Larson. Mm-hmm. Uh, they worked very closely for a number of years. So, so yes, we are. We're still using the tools that were built for the decades uh, when when lunar exploration was was in its heyday. We're we're happy to be able to continue to put these telescopes to good use.
0: What are the other secrets of your success? I, I hate to call them secrets. I mean, it's not just. Great, even if they're somewhat old telescopes and terrific sensors uh, at one end of it. It, it, There's other stuff that's happened. I mean, you talked about the fact that these searches now are largely automated.
3: Sure. There's a a number of uh, secrets, which I will divulge here. (laughs) Uh, One of them is is simply having full-time access to these telescopes. Mm. So the fact that we can use these telescopes in a way that we see fit, we we can optimize their operation for the task of Near-Earth Asteroid Survey. So full-time access to these these telescopes is one. I did mention that uh, these telescopes are highly automated however, uh, another secret to our success is that we have expert observers uh, mm-hmm. running these telescopes in real time at the telescopes. So they're staying up all night, they're executing the plans they are monitoring the systems, you know making sure that everything is in good focus and you know watching for weather. Uh, but one of the main roles for our astronomers is that they will, validate, they will view uh, shortly after the data are taken and processed, they will view these near-Earth asteroid candidates. And and the fact that we can, within a few minutes, put together a sequence of images uh, to, to display to the the observers, they can very quickly determine whether something is real or not. Since we can do that, we, we can really dig deep into the noise of, of our systems. So we could further automate things and and remove that human validation step, but it would come at a cost of of sensitivity to real objects.
0: So humans and machines, it sounds like. Humans and machines, yes. Are your observers at the telescopes, or are they working remotely, or is it a combination?
3: It's a combination. Uh, Our survey telescopes are usually operated on site, Hmm. so somebody is in a climate-controlled room in the dome itself or adjacent to the dome. Uh, we operate a follow-up telescope that does not have a control room, so that is always operated remotely, uh, usually from Tucson here at the University of Arizona. During the pandemic, um, we set things up so people could operate from home. Generally, you know, we have one or two people on Mount Lemmon uh, every clear night, or most every clear night of the year. Have you largely developed the software
0: behind uh, the, these automatic, uh, automated searches uh, here uh, as part of the CSS?
3: A lot of this software has been developed in-house, and that's another uh, sort of key to our success. We we can we can identify areas in the software that can can be improved, and work to fix those. If you make a one percent improvement in a piece of software, and then you do that a few times a year over a few decades, you're really sort of sharpening your your instruments for, for finding near Earth asteroids. We also use freely available software. I mean we. We don't build what is already out there for use, so mm. we use uh, open source, you know, common open source packages that uh, are in, in wide use by astronomy. The detection software, of course, is, is homegrown and, and very, very highly attuned to our specific telescopes and sensors and observing cadence.
0: Are there any standout discoveries that you'd want to call attention to? I mean, I'm sure we could go for an hour just going through some of the things that uh, the CSS has found uh, across the solar system. But I have one in mind in particular, actually, something that happened in in 2008 uh, that you're... Richard Kowalski uh, discovered. I bet you know the one I'm talking about.
3: That's right. Yeah. Most uh, asteroid names just sound like license plates. They're a bunch of numbers and letters, but this is uh, 2008 TC3 that you're mm-hmm. referring to. Yeah, that's it. And uh, that was the the first asteroid that was detected prior to Earth impact. Hmm. So Richard Kowalski was at the telescope uh, operating the survey, as as he, he often did, along with other uh, observers. But on this night, he detected something that was later shown to uh, be on a very near-term impact uh, course with with the Earth. It was a surprise. It was a surprise to all of us. I mean, Mm -hmm. we we had been uh, searching the skies for, you know, the better part of a decade looking for near-Earth asteroids, but I don't think we really thought that we would actually find something immediately before it hit. The common wisdom at the time, and, and really to this day, is that we need to find large objects well in advance of any possible close approaches or, or impacts. Our mandate is to find objects that are 140 meters and larger. But in order to do that, we have to cast a pretty wide net for things that are moving. And that net can, can sweep up uh, 140 meter objects, but also 3 or 4 meter objects, which is about the size of 2008 TC3
0: and i remember those photos of people in the desert in sudan actually finding fragments i mean if i was uh, richard Kowalski, i'd be i'd be pretty proud of this discovery
3: yes uh, and deservedly so i mean it was yeah. it was a, a nice confluence of you know this sort of human uh, automation interaction where we had a highly automated system and an expert observer at the telescope able to identify you know correctly identify near earth asteroid candidates and and even get follow up observations so mm going back to your earlier question about what what are the secrets of this of the CSS success real-time validation and reporting and the ability to schedule follow-up observations even the same night makes it a lot easier to keep those those objects or to to, to make sure that those objects are reobserved and and their orbits determined and published
0: are there any others uh, maybe a couple that you'd want to call attention to there are
3: standouts um, well, there's uh, you know a few more impactors. So af- after the 2008 TC3 in, in 2008, there were there were two others that we detected uh, prior to impact. Uh, I say we as the Catalina Sky Survey, but as it happens, Richard Kowalski was was in the chair that night. I'm not sure what the what, what his magic secret is, but um, <laughs> we we hope that we hope to find more. We've also detected a few uh, so-called mini-moons, uh, again, very small near-Earth asteroids, very close to the Earth, that mm-hmm. were temporarily captured by the Earth's gravity and, and maybe did a few erratic loops around the Earth before, before leaving the, the Earth-Moon system. That was another surprise, I guess, something that we were not specifically looking for. But again, we had a, a system that was attuned to finding fast-moving objects near the Earth. And there are some descriptions of some of these as well, as well as pretty much
0: everything else that we're talking about on the Catalina Sky Survey website, which we will link to from this week's show at uh, planetary.org radio, including these little temporary uh, moons of Earth. Uh, just a fascinating find. Remind us, we've talked about this on the show before, once a discovery is made, confirmed by one of your human observers, What's the process? What, what happens then to, with that data, that, uh, that discovery?
3: Well, when we detect near-Earth asteroids, we distill that uh, data into what's called astrometry, which is just a text listing of position and time in the sky and encodes the, the observatory from, from where we're observing, so the, the place on planet Earth. And those are sort of the building blocks of orbits. And we send those, those building blocks to the Minor Planet Center. And the Minor Planet Center is charged with consolidating all these observations, you know, identifying which observations belong to which object, identifying if there are new objects that need need to be published, and then publishing those, you know, not only the astrometry but the the orbits as well. So they are the the clearinghouse of all near Earth object observations as well as all minor planet observations in the in the solar system. And
0: then that database that the MPC maintains. That's looked at by astronomers all over the world, right, including amateur astronomers who uh, we have talked about many times on this show. You you may know the Planetary Society has a a grant program, our our Shoemaker-Neo grant program, that actually uh, helps these amateurs improve their systems. Uh, But most of them now doing follow-up. I mean, lots of them following up on discoveries made by the CSS.
3: That's right. Amateurs play a a very important role. Um, Occasionally in discovery, there's, you know, there's still room for for amateurs to make uh, new discoveries of near-Earth asteroids, but also particularly in follow-up. So sky surveys like Catalina, like PanStars, like Atlas, uh, we would love to just survey the sky all night and not have to break our cadences and steer our survey telescopes toward uh, single objects where Mm -hmm. uh, that's not the best use of these survey telescopes. That's why dedicated follow-up stations, um, NASA funds many of them. We operate one telescope that is dedicated to, to follow-up. But uh, the act of follow-up is is important to help build the our understanding of the orbit, at least to the point where, where the orbit is well enough known that we can say this is a real object. We know it's a near-Earth object. It is unique. It hasn't been seen before. So it gets entered into the catalog. Even after that, follow-up is still important because yeah. these... Objects have uncertainties associated with their orbital elements. Uh, We don't know exactly where they're going. So just checking in in on them uh, periodically will help beat down that uncertainty and improve the orbit so they don't get uh, misplaced.
0: Yeah, and we don't want to misplace them because you never know which one has our name on it, as we say around here. Sure. Let's look to the future. And I want to start with another colleague of yours in the Lunar and Planetary Lab. Amy Meinzer from JPL, now a professor here on campus, as you know, developing the NEO Surveyor Infrared Space Telescope that uh, we're very supportive of at the Planetary Society. How is that going to change things when NEO Surveyor is up there scanning the skies from above Earth's atmosphere?
3: We're all looking forward to to the yeah. launch and, and uh, healthy operation of, of NEO Surveyor. NEO Surveyor is... is going to be a, a very powerful survey instrument. It, it has the advantage of uh, working above the, the Earth's atmosphere, working in infrared light where asteroids are relatively brighter, being able to operate day and night. There are no day-night cycles at uh, L1. Yeah. However, uh, round-based NEO surveys, optical NEO surveys, and space-based IR surveys, we expect they'll work in very complementary ways. Mm. So Ground-based optical surveys look outward from the Earth toward into the night sky and a, and a little bit toward the twilight sky as well. But NeoSurveyor will look more in the twilight sky and, and not be able to look directly outward from, from the Earth. There's likely to be differences in, in the kinds of objects that NeoSurvey will be sensitive to. NeoSurveyor is designed to essentially fulfill the original mandate to find 140-meter near-Earth asteroids or potentially hazardous asteroids. And we expect that uh, it will be able to do that very efficiently and, and much more quickly than, than we could from the ground. But uh, things like 2008 TC3, those are likely to be the purview of ground-based surveys. I think there's a future for, for ground-based follow-up, ground-based survey, uh, space-based survey, space-based follow-up. Let's throw that in there too. Yeah. Um, yeah. But. Uh, yeah, there's 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 plenty of work to be done for everybody.
0: Lots more rocks out there to discover. That's right. And we should mention L1 of course, Lagrange point 1, one of those relatively stable spots out there in space where uh, a, a spacecraft like Neo Surveyor can just kind of sit and not have to do
3: a lot of work to stay in
0: that one spot. What else is ahead? What's the future in the future for the Catalina Sky Survey?
3: It's always the, the perennial question for me. I mean, we expect that we'll be uh, continuing to survey and, and discover new asteroids for as long as uh, NASA is interested in funding us. In the last few years, and you know, looking toward the future, we've shifted uh, some of our focus and our attention toward the problem of follow-up. Mm. And we've, you know, we've built some tools to help us do that, and, and the community. We have a tool called NeoFixer now, which is available to the public. And this is a way for anybody with a telescope to get a customized list of objects that they can observe and that need observations. There's a a lot of near-Earth objects that are observable, and many of them don't need to be observed. They're numbered. They're well-known. They've been observed for decades. So this NeoFixer is a way for us to uh, schedule our own follow-up telescopes and hopefully help coordinate the, the global follow-up effort as well.
0: That's very cool, and that's exactly where I was hoping to go next because of the outreach abilities, or activities of the CSS, and also the citizen science angle uh, of what you do. Say something about the Catalina Sky Survey orbit view. Which, which I had some fun playing with a couple of
3: days ago. Uh, yeah, the CSS Orbit View is, is linked on our website. It was developed by one of our, our astronomers, David Rankin. And it's a way of uh, visualizing the orbit of, of an asteroid, a near-Earth asteroid, in the context of the solar system. So you can pan and zoom and, and reorient the view. You can center the, your view on the Sun or the Earth or, or the asteroid and uh, run it backward and forward in time so you can visualize uh, close approaches it's one of those tools that uh, we find useful and and we have made it available to the public and uh, hope that other people like you might find them. Yeah, find it's pretty it. fun.
0: It's a lot of fun. I, I encourage people to take a look at this little interactive tool. You told me that you've got another citizen science project, I get maybe still in the works, something that will happen through uh,
3: Zooniverse? That's right. Uh, another of our astronomers slash engineers, Carson Foles, is working on a, a citizen science effort that will essentially ask the public for help identifying moving objects much as we do at the telescope uh, on a nightly basis um, this platform will enable us to put more of our data in front of the public in a way that's hopefully easy to understand and and easy to to interact with and Mm. uh, not only give people the flavor of what it's like to actually work at a project like Catalina Sky Survey you know uh, at least one aspect of it but but also to make meaningful contributions we we expect that uh, we will be sending data onto the Zooniverse platform through this this uh, citizen science project that has been reprocessed. We're, we're currently reprocessing dec- decades of our of our older data, hmm. and every night we, we we scan through most of the data. But there's there's always data there's always additional data that you know didn't quite make the cut that we know has real objects there, and so maybe th- this might be an opportunity to to have people help find new near-Earth asteroids as well. There's
0: one more thing that might be fun even for uh, other folks out there, lay people like myself, or maybe people who who own a telescope like myself, but I I don't call myself much of an astronomer. And it's something else I found on on the website called Ask an Asteroid Hunter, where you can um, throw a question at you and your your staff.
3: That's right. Uh, That is... That is managed by yet another of our our multitude of talented team members, uh, Greg Leonard. So uh, it's basically just what it says. If you have a question about uh, asteroids or a question for Catalina Sky Survey, you can go to Ask an Asteroid Hunter and type that in and uh, expect a reply. It's very cool.
0: You're an observer. I'm just wondering, do you have a telescope someplace with 20 little notches or maybe little comet silhouettes uh, inscribed (laughs) on the side? Because you've got, or is it more than that now, 20 20 comets? It's 25, I think. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, the page I saw must be out of date.
3: Okay. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So when I started with the Catalina Sky Survey in in 2003, it was uh, sort of the earlier days of, of CSS. There had just been some major... Upgrades and improvements, and uh, we were just trying to figure out how to efficiently use these these systems. And so I, I did spend a lot of time observing uh, for the for the first four years or so when I was at Catalina. And you know, one of the perks of of uh, looking at the sky night after night uh, is that sometimes you find something that nobody else has has, has seen before. Guidelines dictate that that object, if it's confirmed as a new comet, can, can bear your name. So, yes, I've, I've had the good fortune to find uh, a number of comets, as have Amazing. Mo- most of the people who have uh, done any observing with Catalina Sky Survey.
0: Yeah, there was a little scorecard going through your staff. I think maybe it is, maybe the others are out of date as well, but pretty impressive. To combine the fact that you are learning about these objects, which is valuable in itself. But that you may also, with the work of Catalina Sky Survey, be um, helping some place on Earth, or maybe all of Earth, avoid a whole bunch of trouble someday. But you're also getting this opportunity to see things that no human has ever seen
2: before.
3: We do always have in the back of our mind our you know the the main reason why we're here and why we're why we're funded by NASA. It's to find uh, potentially hazardous near Earth asteroids, but in addition to that, it's just an interesting project. It's an interesting technical challenge. It's an interesting sociological area to, to work in. I, I've been fascinated by near-Earth asteroids, essentially, since I started working with, with Catalina Sky Survey. And I'm, I'm glad to be able to uh, you know still contribute to, to the effort.
0: I'm glad that you and your, your great team are, uh, are doing all this work on our behalf, Eric. Uh, keep up the great work. Clear skies. And uh, thanks for taking a few minutes with us on Planetary Radio.
3: Thank you very much, Matt. It's time for
0: What's Up on Planetary Radio. And uh, we're going to have some fun today. Boy, we got some really fun responses, Bruce, to the uh, question that you asked a couple of weeks ago for the contest. Uh, Welcome the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, everybody.
4: Hey, everybody. How you doing?
0: I keep getting these wonderful messages that make me feel great. And I'm going to share this one because it's from Chris Midden in in Illinois, uh, who I actually met when I was going down there for the the big solar eclipse a few years ago and hope to go back in 2024. Matt, your influence of sharing the PB&J of space will never be gone. When I teach my middle school science class, I often reflect on all you have shared over the years and that excitement and passion you shared stays with me and I pass it on. Thank you, Chris.
4: Yeah, yeah, you're great. <laughs> I'm
0: getting, I really am getting so many of these. It's no, just, it's really wonderful. Thank and you. Everybody.
4: And you truly deserve it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I got it out of him. Hey, you don't have to go on. It's okay. You can tell us about the night sky.
4: Thank you. All right. So we've got planets in the evening sky. It's just a wonderful time to look at planets in the evening sky. I saw Mars the other night. It added, it made me joyful. It's getting so very bright. Just after sunset, uh, we've got Jupiter looking very bright over in the east, east, southeast, and to its upper right quite a ways is yellowish Saturn looking kind of bright. If you wait another hour, a couple hours, you'll see this really bright, not Jupiter bright, but we're getting there, reddish planet thing, which is Mars. It, it looks like a red star, but it it's bright. And way over to its where I was in the early evening, over to its right is Aldebaran, which is a now much dimmer reddish star, which used to be similar in brightness. So Earth and Mars are closing in on each other, and it'll be uh, December 8th. They'll be at opposition and uh, it'll keep brightening until then when it's on the opposite side of the Earth from the Sun. On the evening of the 20th and 21st of October, and for a few nights afterwards, there's still increased meteor activity from the Orionids, which is not a, it's kind of an average shower, produces maybe 20 meteors per hour from a dark site. Uh, Left by debris from common Halley, so go stare at the sky if you're patient. You'll see some meteors. And then if you live in most of Europe, do you live in most of Europe, Matt? No,
0: you don't. I don't even live in a small portion of Europe.
4: In most of Europe, southwestern Asia, and northeastern Africa on October 25th, the moon will cover part of the sun. (laughs) It's normal everyone. Don't worry. It is a partial solar eclipse. However, do not stare at the sun because it still will um, burn your eyes out. So find an indirect way. You can find plenty of tips on the web for watching it. If that's where you are, you can get times and dates. Just search on the web.
0: Jupiter really is bright. You don't need to wear glasses or protection or anything like that. Have you been pointing Jupiter out to strangers? Doesn't everybody? I do. (laughs)
4: Uh, I have in my time pointed it out to strangers. Uh, I'm pointing it out right now to strangers that are listening. (laughs) They're so strange because they're listening. I'm just kidding. We appreciate you just like you all appreciate Matt. (laughs) On to this week in space history, Mars Odyssey, working since 2001. Amazing. And uh, four years ago, BepiColombo launched and is headed on its way, winding its way to Mercury uh, with uh, a couple of spacecraft, with ESA and JAXA, the Japanese space agency involved. I move on to... I think you made it to fifth gear there. Yeah, I was trying for eighth. So you may ask yourself, Matt, I know I've heard you ask, who was the first ESA astronaut to command the International Space Station? So there were a bunch of Americans and, and Russians. And you know who that was, Matt?
0: I have heard the name. I forget. Who was
4: it? From most of Europe, but most specifically Belgium.
0: Uh-huh.
4: Frank Viscount de Wynne.
0: Yes, that is the name that I remember. Little nobility in space
4: on to the trivia contest i asked you to name the solar system body and the category of geologic feature that are officially named after abandoned cities of antiquity how'd we do matt just a moderate response
0: but some really good stuff in here and we have a poem and a song i'm going to start with the poem from our Poet Laureate, Dave Fairchild in Kansas. Apologies to anyone who may have once lived in one of these ancient cities. I, <laughs> I, 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 I traveled to Timgod and also to Angkor. Cahokia marked off my list. To Pastrum, I journeyed. Karal then I hurried before they would cease to exist. These cities of ancients abandoned on earth our histories try to explain and all of them named as a lengthening valleys. Engraved out on Mercury's plane. Ooh. Very dramatic. Yeah, I feel a what is that? A sense of awe. Ah, yes, you should. So these are valleys, right? Otherwise in Latin, vallis on, on Mercury?
4: Yes, that is exactly right. That is what is named after the abandoned cities, or technically towns or settlements of antiquity that you've nicely listed off uh, most, if not all of them. Who is our winner? Lisa Werner,
0: she's a first-time winner out of Wisconsin. She said, uh, Valerie's, uh, Valerie's, Valleys on Mercury. <laughs> and so, uh, congratulations, Lisa. We have a terrific prize for you. It's the CD, the just-released album of the Moon Symphony from Signum Classics with uh, liner notes, partially prepared by yours truly. What? And, and <laughs> seriously. It's that marvelous performance by the London Symphony Orchestra under the baton of Marin Alsop, composed by Amanda Lee Falkenberg, who, of course, we have uh, had on the show and uh, we covered that uh, recording session. So uh, congratulations, Lisa. We'll put that in the mail. I think it's a signed copy of the CD signed by Marin Alsop. I got more. Really? Cool. A bunch of people, including uh, Scott Miller in Maryland, longtime listener, Mentioned that uh, Valles Cahokia, that's in Illinois, his home state of Illinois, even though he's in Maryland now. It's the Cahokia mounds left by uh, the indigenous peoples who lived there many, many years ago.
4: Yes, and in fact, I learned more about them and uh, dug into Google Images and the like. uh, When I saw that, I, I was not familiar with them. The Mounds in Illinois. Pretty cool. Maybe you can see it when you go for the next eclipse. That'd be fun. I wonder if they're in
0: southern Illinois. Yeah. I hadn't heard of them either. From Laura Dodd in California, another longtime listener. Dang, Bruce. I started out thinking that the name of the solar system body you were thinking of was also named for an abandoned city. What a long search through
4: asteroids that
0: was. Oh,
4: gosh. (laughs) I'm sorry.
0: (laughs) Mel Powell in California. Another regular funny guy, but Dr. Betts, how do we know that there are no abandoned cities on other solar system bodies? How do we really know? Huh? Huh? Let's just say I'm not at liberty to tell you. I knew it. I knew it. And finally, this from Gene Lewin in the lovely state of Washington down in the vallis, the vallis so low we'll soon see a spacecraft bepi colombo the sun's closest planet it is mercury the valis are named for abandoned cities there's plenty of sunshine and bright as can be a temperature span of 900 degrees i'd name all the cities but the names don't quite rhyme but all have been empty for quite a long time I'm I can,
4: I'm I can. <laughs> Bravo, baby, too. <laughs> please take us to another contest. put your thinking caps and research fingers on, on it ready although it, it is possible you will know this in which case, I salute you. what popular let me rephrase what video game popular particularly in the nineteen eighties owes its name to William Herschel, huh? So to narrow it down, because that Herschel guy got around popular in the 1980s and other times, but that was its heyday. Go to planetary.org slash
0: radio contest. That is very interesting. And you have until the 26th, October 26 at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us this one. And, you know, we have to stick with this theme after talking to two of the great discoverers of uh, asteroids, discoverers and trackers in our solar system what else but a planetary society kick asteroid rubber asteroid for uh, the one who gets this one that's it
4: how very appropriate all right everybody go out there look up in the night sky and think about a video game where the main character is matt thank you <laughs> and good night Ooh, that's uh oh oh matt watch out look out look out <laughs> apparently
0: you you have played donkey kong uh that's bruce <laughs> He's the chief scientist of uh, the Planetary Society who joins me, Mario, every week for What's Up.
4: Oh, I I was debating between Donkey Kong and the princess.
0: Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its watchful members. There may be no better way for us non-astronomers to defend Earth than to become part of the Planetary Society at planetary.org slash join. Mark Hilverda and Ray Paletta are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Add asteroid.